good. Well, we are in that last weekend before Christmas, the, the final candle, the traditionally pink candle on the wreath is lit. That must mean there are fewer than seven days left before our Christmas holiday. Most of us, as believers in Jesus, familiar with the Christmas story, we can probably conjure in our mind's eye a picture of what that must have looked like, what that very first Christmas night might have looked like. In most cases, though, those images, I think, are are influenced by uh, various nativity scenes that we've seen throughout our lives at Christmas time, decorations inside on on the mantle above the fireplace or on on the coffee table or outside in in front of the church, not this church, but other churches that do a better job of uh, having their pastor decorate. Uh, we, we see the nativity scenes and those kind of get melded into our minds of, of, of what that must have looked like. I think, though, if we're interested in historical accuracy, we have to quickly remind ourselves that most of the nativity scenes that we've seen are based more on tradition than what the Bible actually says. At, at best, they're, they're symbols. They're, they're symbolic in that they don't really paint a, a very literal picture of, of what very likely actually happened on that first Bethlehem night. For example, uh, a lot of nativity scenes are centered around a stable, uh, but the Bible never says specifically that there was a stable. It just says that they laid the baby in an animal's feeding trough. Uh, Could it have been a stable? It certainly could have been a stable or a barn. Some have speculated that it might have more likely been a cave. Some have said, well, maybe it was just outside. It really could have been anywhere, perhaps just in an open yard area behind the inn. Speaking of inn, the Bible never actually says that there was an inn. Uh, We have this, this tradition about the innkeeper who turns them away, but the Bible just says there were no guest rooms in in Bethlehem that night. So we don't know, was there an inn? Was there not an inn? Probably not Motel 6 in the way we are familiar with it, but something else happened where there was no roof to put over the heads of Mary and Joseph that night. Most nativity sets depict an angel kind of hovering over that stable uh, and though angels absolutely appear in the Bible story about Jesus' birth, uh, the Bible never mentions specifically that there was one hovering over the manger. Uh, we have the wise men in the nativity scene. Uh, now, wise men definitely b- visited the baby Jesus. We can read their story in the Gospel of, of Matthew, but they probably didn't visit him on the night he was born. Um, Maybe they didn't even visit him in Bethlehem. The Bible doesn't give us the details about exactly when or where that would have happened. It's far more likely that the wise men made their visit a few days later, maybe even a few weeks or a few months later. Some have speculated Jesus could have been as old as two when the wise men finally got there. We really just don't know, just like we don't know for sure how many wise men there were. Tradition says there were three. We even sing We Three Kings from Orient, right? But we don't know how many there were. We know that they brought three gifts, but if they were as wise as we've always believed they were, they probably chipped in for those gifts. There could have been a whole lot of wise men. We just really don't know. And that brings us to the shepherds, which is who I want to focus on today. Because they were the first visitors to see the baby Jesus. The Bible is very clear about that. Almost certainly on the day that he was born. They're the ones that belong 
most historically, most accurately in our little nativity scenes. And so I want to reread for many of you the story as Luke tells it from Luke chapter 2, verse 8. He says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. I'm going to pause there and make a few comments. The Bible says that there was a group of shepherds who were pulling the night shift in a field just outside of town, and they were visited by an angel who told them about the birth of Jesus. And that angel used three words to describe the baby Jesus. He used the word Savior. Now the Jews had long been promised that there would be a Savior who would lead them, or save them rather, from oppression. The angel used the word Messiah, Messiah was an ancient word that means one who is anointed by God for a specific mission. And the angel used the word Lord, which just means master or ruler. The angel said, this baby is going to be your savior, your Messiah, and your Lord. In other words, a baby has been born today. That was the message of the angel. A baby has been born today who has been chosen by God to lead his people out of their oppression. And the angel says, this announcement that I'm making to you is good news. Hey guys, I've got good news for you. A baby has been born today, and that baby has been anointed by God to lead his people out of oppression, to bring them victory. What kind of news is it? It's good news. Well, I should say so. It is good news. Now, in the early part of the Middle Ages, there was an old English word that meant good news, and that word is gospel. If you were living in the six or seven hundreds in, in, in England, and the soldiers from your village went and conquered another village, and they brought back plunder, and you heard about it. Hey, the soldiers from the village are bringing back some plunder. They, they just got some stuff that's going to help us out. You would say, well, that's some gospel. That's some good news. If you were living in the six or seven hundreds in merry old England and you were a farmer and it had been dry for a period of several months and your crops weren't growing too well and then you heard that there were rains coming, you would say, well, there's some gospel. There's some good news. There's some good news. And that's what the angel said. He appeared to the shepherds and he said, this message is gospel. This is good news. So this, this moment that I'm highlighting here, this is the part in the Christmas story where the gospel is announced. The gospel, the good news, the gospel is announced. Go back in your mind's eye to those nativity scenes that we see so often this time of year. I already mentioned that they're more symbolic than they are historical, but that's really okay. I think that's good. I think we need symbols to help us remember. I think one of the things that we love about them is their symbolism. As Christians who have come to Christ from many different vantage points, we like to see a crowd around Jesus, don't we? 
We like to see a motley crew around Jesus. We like to see a lot of folks there because maybe we find that we identify with some of them. I mean, there's Mary and Joseph. Their humble lives were interrupted by God's plan. There's the shepherds. They're kind of the local riffraff, right? Overlooked and outcasts to many, but not overlooked by the Father. There's the wise men, the distant, distant travelers who had no business even knowing about Jesus if it weren't for the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit who called them from afar. And then there's all kinds of other characters that we have superimposed into the story out of our own traditions. There's that innkeeper. We don't know if he even really existed. As I said, we don't even know if there was an inn, but we think about the innkeeper, right? What children's Christmas pageant is complete, if not for a seven-year-old in a bathrobe saying, no room, you gotta go stay in the stable, right? We, we think about that innkeeper who initially rejects Jesus, but then finds it in his heart to say, no, I, I think there is room. I think there is a space. I think we can do something here. How about the little drummer boy? No basis in scripture whatsoever, right? His story is only about 100 years old. We wouldn't even know about him if it weren't for the Von Trapp family singers. But we think about that little drummer boy because we want to we wanna identify with somebody who says, no, I, I have a gift. Even in my humility, even in my lack, I, I have a gift to bring my Savior. Which one of us hasn't seen one of the many paintings of Santa Claus himself? kneeling before the manger, right? Now, I've read the gospel from beginning to back several times. I have really no basis to believe that jolly old St. Nick was there that night, uh, but we like the pictures. We like to think, yeah, even, even Santa knows. Even Santa knows. We put anybody we can think of in, in that position of coming to see the baby Jesus my Aunt Rita had a nativity scene when I was growing up. It was more than just a nativity scene. She had a collection of the whole village of Bethlehem. And every year she would add to it. She'd get a few more houses. She'd get a little bit more. By the time she was done collecting, it wasn't a little town of Bethlehem. It was like lower Manhattan. There was a pharmacy on the corner. She had a Burger King, a McDonald's. She had everything that you could imagine. It took over half her living room. And my cousins would take their Star Wars figures and insert them into the village in various places. You, you don't recognize how much a cloaked Jedi Knight looks like a shepherd if you put a staff in his hand, right? One year we showed up for Easter, I'm sorry, for Christmas, might as well have been Easter, right? We showed up for Christmas and looked in the manger and in there, sound asleep in the hay was r 2 No crime he made. Right? We, 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 we want to get anybody we can into our image of, of who belongs at the manger, who belongs worshiping and kneeling in praise to Jesus. There's something within us that wants to imagine as many people as we can at that manger. I think there's something within us that needs to be reminded that there's room in Jesus's presence for whosoever wilt. There's something within us that, that thinks that maybe if the crowd is big enough, maybe I'll feel more confident that maybe there's a place for me too. And maybe there's a place for the ones that I love.
But the story of the shepherds reminds us that the journey toward Emmanuel can only begin once the gospel is announced. Nobody gets there unless the gospel is announced. Look what happens next. Having announced the gospel, the angel says something else to the shepherds. I pick up the story in verse 2, Luke 2.12. I'm sorry, verse 12, Luke 2.12. Say that three times fast. The angel says, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Go back to that manger in your imagination. What does the manger look like? If you're like me, it's, it's rustic, rough-hewn wood. And, and right on the center, just perfectly symmetrical, is this tall pile of warm, fresh hay. And it's, it's perfectly arranged. Can, we, can you just inhale with me? The scent of fresh-cut hay. Like, and it's comfy. It's like eight inches thick, pillow-topped. He's got a, you know, a warm swaddle all around him. I have, I'm not ashamed to tell you, I have been jealous of the baby Jesus looking in at some of those nativity scenes. It's like, man, I wish my mattress was that comfortable. He just looks so comfortable and so peaceful there. No, 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 no. That's not what it would have been like. I, can we remind ourselves that a manger is not a rustic crib? Right? This isn't a crib or a bassinet that you put in your house if you're looking for kind of the log cabin chic. That's not what we're doing here. A manger is a feeding trough for barnyard animals. It's disgusting. Do you know what they do with their food? Do you know what they do? Do you know that they spit it up and eat some more of it later? That's what barnyard animals do. I'm a few credits shy of my pharmacology degree. But I don't think mangers are clean. I don't think they're nice. I don't think they smell good. I don't think the hay that you find on the floor of the barn smells nice. I don't think any of that is true. I have wondered many times, especially as a new father myself, what possibly could Joseph have done to that manger that made Mary agree to put their baby down in it? How could he possibly have cleaned that up in a way acceptable to the new mom to say, yeah, we'll lay her down, we'll lay her down there. I picture Mary going, are you crazy? Are you crazy, Joe? You're telling me to put my new baby there? No, I'm good. I'm just going to hold him. How many new parents haven't just held their baby all night? It's not a hard thing to do on night one, right? But no, we'll just put him down in the feeding trough. Move the poop out of the way. You know, move the throw up out of the way. We're just going to put him down. It's absurd. It's absurd that that's where he was going to be. It's absurd that that's where the shepherds were told to look for him. If you remember nothing else that I say today, remember this. Babies don't belong in mangers. They don't belong in mangers. When I was serving at another church, uh, we had a youth pastor who had his, his first child, his first daughter. He was a young, first-time dad. The youth group that he led, we had in, in that facility a different um, auditorium where the youth group would meet. They had their own space. And they had these ginormous speakers. They were four and a half feet tall. They were big. And when you turned on the sound system, they could rattle windows five miles away. Praise the Lord, right? 
And the teens would get those things going and pumping and blasting, and it would just shake the whole building. And the first time that my colleague, the youth pastor, came back to youth group after having his little baby, he was there in the evening. Uh, they were getting set up. They were getting everything ready for youth group, and he had the baby in a, in a car seat. And he set that car seat down right on top of the speaker. The speaker would sit on the floor, and he set the car seat down on the speaker, and then he goes off, and he's doing his thing and getting ready, and the volunteers come in for the sound system, and they get everything going, and that car seat is shaking back and forth. Brand new baby. And thanks be unto God, grown-ups arrived. And said, what are you doing? And he said, she loves it. Look at her. She loves it. She just, she's just bouncing in there all over. I mean, it's like 150 decibels, right? And you don't put a baby on a loudspeaker. Are we good with that? Look, HRCC, I don't want to get too far off the topic here. We have a lot of new parents in our congregation. And by way of public service, I'm like, Ryan Rigsby, are you in the house today? Ryan, yeah, you're out there, they're watching it. Ryan and Nikki, don't put your baby on the speakers, okay? <laughs> Vanessa, I'm looking in your direction, okay? Don't put your baby on the speaker. There's places babies belong, and there's places babies don't belong. Are we good? Maybe we, I'll forget the rest of my message. Maybe we should pray and go home. <laughs> babies don't belong in majors. Babies don't belong. <laughs> I love my church. Look, here's why I bring that up. We cannot allow ourselves to lose sight of the absurdity of the Christmas story. It's absurd. But it's the absurdity that confirms its legitimacy. The angel says to the shepherds, I'm going to tell you this thing, and it's going to sound weird, but here's how you're going to know I'm telling you the truth. You're going to see something you never would have believed unless you hadn't seen it with your own eyes. And with that, the gospel is confirmed. The gospel is announced first, but it's confirmed second. I believe that God is a God who confirms what he says. He doesn't just say some stuff and say, I'll leave it to y'all to figure it out. He doesn't just say some things and say, well, let me know what you think about it. No, God is a God who announces and then he confirms. And when God has good news, he says, Juan, I'm going to tell you some good news and then I'm going to show you that it's true. That's how God works. So if you are a Christian today, it's because the gospel was first announced to you and then it was confirmed in your life. You saw something that you didn't expect to see. It looked out of place to you like a newborn baby lying in a manger in a feeding trough. But there was no denying it. Something, or more probably someone, changed. Maybe that someone was you. Maybe you saw something or you felt something different than you'd ever known before. Whatever it was, there was no real explanation for it apart from God. And if you're not a Christian today, know that God is not expecting you to figure him out first. What he is proclaiming over your life is good news and he is faithful to confirm it. Take a closer look at what you've heard and you will see something that has no explanation other than God. 
That's what happened to the shepherds. But I love it because before they even had a moment to consider the absurdity of a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough, something amazing happened. We pick up the story in verse 13. Suddenly, suddenly, as in before they could even process what had already happened, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What was once a single angel suddenly becomes an entire army. What was initially a solitary voice becomes a chorus of thousands upon thousands. What was once a lone herald becomes a multitude. In other words, this is the moment that the gospel is affirmed. It's affirmed. I'm not gonna call anybody out. And I don't think we should point any fingers. But do we all know that there are some people in church services who have a habit of saying yes and amen while the pastor's preaching? Are we aware there might be a couple of them here? I'm not going to point any fingers um, at anybody in particular, but I think we all know that those folks exist. When I was a little boy, there was a man in, in the church that I attended, and he used to sit, I can picture, he sat right about where Karen sits in our church, you know, about three rows back. How you doing, Karen? Good to see you. Just to the pastor's right, just off of center. Uh, he was an immigrant from Latin America, and he had this deep, booming voice with a thick accent. And I promise you, the pastor couldn't get more than three or four lines out without everybody in the place hearing Rudy go, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Loved that. There was just a percussion and a rhythm to that. When Rudy passed years later, I remember, man, for a long time, church just seemed quieter. But I think a lot of churches have those folks, and we, we learn to recognize and, and almost expect their voices. I want to say this about those folks. People like that aren't being rude. People like that, contrary to what you might think, aren't just trying to, you know, get some attention or get people to notice them. They don't annoy the pastor. People like that are playing a very important biblical role in the proclamation of the gospel. See, there may just be one herald, only one angel gave the message that night, right? There might be just a single herald, but there are a multitude of others chiming in with their agreement, affirming to each one who hears that what they're hearing is real. Amen. You know that's what that word means. It just means I agree. And there's something biblical about hearing the message, and when you hear it, affirming it with a, I agree. I agree. Amen. There's something about that. You know that's why they put laugh tracks on television shows, right? Because it's easier for me to laugh. It's easier for me to know it's funny if I hear somebody else saying, <laughs> no, that was funny. Right? And so when the gospel is proclaimed, God is going to confirm it, but he is going to use the voices of the multitude to affirm it, to say, yeah, that's real. That's real. What you're hearing now is real. Look around you. Look around you. Part of the reason that God has placed you in a church is so that the gospel message isn't something that you have to figure out on your own. God has put you here on purpose. His good news is being affirmed in your life. 
by those who surround you with the sounds of their praise. Amen. There it was. I love it. Now this really is the moment. This is the single moment in the Christmas story that I wanted to drive towards today. I want you to notice this because the angels have come. The gospel has been announced. God has confirmed it. And it has been affirmed by the multitudes. The message has been delivered. What's going to happen now? Because nothing will change in the shepherds' lives if they just leave it at that. No one is forcing them to do anything with the information they've been given. If they want, they can return to life as normal and nothing will have changed. They'll have a fairly interesting story to tell. But nothing will be different. And for 2,000 years, you and I are going to be buying nativity sets that have Mary, Joseph, and a couple of wise men. That's it. So what do they do? Verse 15 tells us what they do. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, two words, let's go. Let's go. God has said this thing has happened. What are you going to do with it? We could sit here and have another night like last night. We could tell ourselves, no, what, what we thought we were doing is really what's most important here. That was interesting. Wait till the other guys hear about it. We could say, um, yeah, let me get out my phone and see when I can schedule that in. How's next Wednesday? We have a tendency to do all of those things, don't we? What did the shepherds do? Let's go. Let's go. Let me finish the verse. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. You remember the Christmas carol, go tell it on the mountain. You see the words in your bulletin, go and tell. I think in the Christmas carol, the idea behind the going is that we go forth and we proclaim the, the, the Christmas message. Let us go and tell it on the mountain. But we cannot go forth if we do not first go to the one we've been told about. There's a going that precedes the going. And the question then remains for us. Will you choose to go? Will you choose to go? The, the shepherds chose to go. The angels never forced them to go. Did, did you notice it in the story? The angels left. I think sometimes we've, we've misremembered the story. Like the angels came and proclaimed and said, come on, we're going to take you there. We're going to take you. Come with us. Come on, get in there, get in there. Everybody smiles for the camera. But that's not what happened. God, by his spirit, proclaimed the gospel over the shepherd's life and then said, all right, what are you going to do about it? And the shepherd said, let's go. Let's go. The shepherds found their way to Jesus only because they made a choice to respond to what they had been told. And so maybe you hear this Christmas message today and you say, all right, Dan, good job. That is exactly how I found Jesus. I heard the gospel announced 
God both confirmed it and affirmed it in my life. And that's when I chose to seek Jesus. I found him. And thanks be unto God, I'm a Christian today because of that. And if that's your story, I say hallelujah. Great. But did the gospel end there? Or is God still proclaiming good news over your life? Is God still speaking good news over you today? I would suggest that he is. If God is God, then there is no end to his kingdom, which means there is no end to the good news. For some of us today, the good news is that God offers forgiveness and he offers restoration. The good news is that God is the God of second chances or third chances. Or how about we do this? Rather than just counting chances, let's say that God is the God whose grace knows no limit. And if that's you today, you can say, well, 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 I was saved, but now I'm ashamed of what I've become. And, and, And we hold back in our shame. We hear the gospel and we know the gospel, but acting on it feels like a bridge too far, a risk too big to take. If that's you, then you need to make today a day of going. You need to make a day a day of going. You've heard the good news. The good news is that God is a God whose grace knows no limits. It's been confirmed by the miracles you've seen in others. And you can hear the affirming amens of brothers and sisters who would say to you, I've been there. I've been there. But now, now is the time for you to go to Jesus. Or maybe, or maybe. The good news for you today is that God has the power to heal your body. Maybe that's the good news that God is speaking over you today. You know it. You've heard it. It's been proclaimed. It's been confirmed. You've seen miracles in other lives. It's been affirmed. You hear people say it all the time. Pastor gets up here and says it. People pray for each other, laying on hands, blah, blah, blah. But there's something within you that says, I just, I I feel like I want to wait to see if I get there. I feel like I want to wait. Take your clue from the shepherds today. Wait no longer and go. Go and see. Go and search and seek and find. Or maybe I could go on all day, couldn't I, Dave? Maybe, just maybe for you, the good news for you today is that God is the God who wants to baptize you with his spirit. Yeah, he's placed his spirit as a seal on your life, but he wants to plunge you into the depths of that relationship so that you might know power unlike you've ever known it in your life, so that you might experience a boldness in your witness for him, so that you might have the sense of constant, constant communion, abiding communion with the very presence of God. God wants to do a new thing in your life. Will you go? Or will you sit and wait for it to happen? Or maybe, I just got one more. I mean, we could go here all day, but I got one more I want to tell you about. Maybe for you, maybe for you, the good news being proclaimed over you today is that God wants to use you to build his kingdom. I think that if we gave Beth more time and asked her to tell her story, she would tell you that there was a time years ago where she felt like God was saying to her, I want you to go serve me in a far off land. That's a very unique calling, isn't it? I think she would tell you there was a time when she heard that and through the years God has confirmed it and God has affirmed it in different ways, but God wasn't going to transport her to Bolivia. God wasn't going to zap her and make her a missionary. Beth had to make choices in her lives to say this thing that I thought I was doing, I'm not going to do it anymore. 
This field out here where we've been sitting all night is not where we're gonna end up this night. We're gonna go. We're gonna go. And so Beth said, you know what? I'm gonna go. I love Beth's story. She didn't even know where she was going. <laughs> and then when she thought she knew she was going, God said, I think that's cute, but I actually have a different mission for you. You're gonna figure it out what you need to know. But Beth was willing to say, Lord, I'll go. I'll go. I'm not just going to sit and wait. Maybe that's your story today. It might not involve Bolivia. I don't know if it does or it doesn't, but I think God is speaking good news over your life today. I think God is saying, hey, I know you love me. I know you met Jesus, but I wasn't done telling you good news the day you became a believer. I wasn't done telling you good news the day you became a follower. I wasn't done confirming and affirming the good news in your life. It's time to go. It's time to go. Whatever your situation is today, I promise you, I promise you that God has good news for you. I promise you that his gospel is valid for your life. I promise you that the opportunity for a great encounter lies just in front of you. The question before us today is, will you go? Will you go? I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we conclude in prayer. Just right where you are. See right where you are. And I want to give you moments in these final couple of moments to just listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying. When was the last time you really purposefully asked God, what do you have to say to me today? If it's been a little while, then I want to give you at least a moment to ask him that question right now. And to listen in your heart for his good news. Lord, what do you have to say to me today? Father, there is a gospel that is being proclaimed in hearts around this room. To some, I hear you saying right now, my child, do not worry. I have good news. To others, I sense in this moment, Lord, you are saying, my child, there's about to be breakthrough in your life. I have good news. To some, we hear you saying in this moment, son or daughter, I have heard your prayer. I have good news for you today. To some, Lord, to some right here in this room, we hear you saying, my child, I have more for you than you ever thought was possible. I'm not done with you by a long shot. That's good news. Amidst all of those messages, Lord, we hear the welcome home. We hear the rise and be healed. We hear the come, my prodigal, and be restored in the relationship. Lord, we hear those messages today. I pray, Lord, that the ones who need to hear them specifically would have ears to do so. And now, Lord, with the amens of the family, as resounding affirmations that your word is good news, 
we say to each other, let's go. Let's go. Let's not be content to spend another hour in this field outside of town. Let's go. Let's not be content to be one of the millions throughout time who has heard the message and said, huh, that's interesting. No, let's go. Let's go and see. Let's go and look. Let's go and visit. Let's go and discover. Let's go and just simply be in the spot we were made to be, in the presence of the one by whose name we are saved. Let us go. I pray, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts and that you would quicken our feet, that you would quicken our minds and our spirits as we proceed into this next part of our lives with a renewed understanding that you have called us to go. May it be so for your purposes. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Church, I wish you a Merry Christmas.